We gotta talk because there's this new book out with the YouTube clickbait worthy title of After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. Basically casting Tim as a neglectful father who never gave Johnny the support or protection he needed and Johnny as a spoiled and detached diva who fell increasingly out of touch with Apple customers, regular humans. But is any of it true? Some of it. None of it. All of it. I've had a review copy for a couple weeks now. I've read it twice. I've also spoken to Tim and Johnny and Trip in the past. And as somebody who's covered Apple day in, day out for almost 15 years now, I'm going to tell you just exactly what I think. Right after I tell you about the exclusive follow-up video I've made focusing on the Project Titan aspects of this book that's available exclusively through today's sponsor, the Curiosity Stream and Nebula Bundle, currently on super sale for 42% off. And I'll tell you all about it at the end of this video. I have to just tell you about my personal biases right up front. Nothing about Trip specifically, but just in general, I find that the big newspapers, the papers of record and the business publications, they're fantastic reporters. They are amazing writers, but they don't always have a history with the company. And in some cases, for a lot of companies even, that doesn't matter. But for other companies, companies like Apple, for you know, big example, they just don't work the way any other company works. They have very distinct cultures, very distinct organizations, and very distinct views and goals that separate them from the vast majority of other companies, even within their own industry. But these big papers and big business publications, even all the way through their editorial staffs, they are institutionally unable to sort of handle that, to process that. So everything gets covered as a beige company like IBM or GE. They have tremendous sources. They have incredible access to information. They get a lot of facts, but many times those facts end up being viewed through very, very generic lenses. So to me, it leads to a lot of incorrect narratives or rather facts being used to support a narrative rather than facts being used to discover the narrative. Now, in this book, I think Trip has done an incredible job, not just in collecting all of these stories from hundreds and hundreds of interviews, but in really beginning to put together a much more comprehensive view of Apple. I don't think it represents all of the people in Apple, at least the way that I know them, the way that I've come to understand them. I think a lot of that is still missing, but I think the general vibe of Apple is way better represented than it is in those you know big media publications and papers of record. And I think that in and of itself is a huge accomplishment because for the most part, it's also been missing from almost every other book about Apple. So just straight up front, if you are interested in Apple, in their culture, in why they do things and things that they have done, sometimes things that don't make sense, I cannot recommend this book more. I don't think everything in it is accurate. And I'm going to go through a lot of that. And I think as perspectives go, it is very two-dimensional, not very three-dimensional at all. But a lot of this stuff is just completely unavailable in written form anywhere else. So anytime you have any ability to get any of it at all uh, and it interests you, it is absolutely worthwhile doing it. And I'll put a link to the book in the description so you can go and grab it at your, you know, your earliest convenience. All that said, some of the things that are described, some of the larger stories that are described here, I have heard about before and I've heard from the people who are involved and they're not exactly represented in the way that I've heard them. And that I think does come down to a matter of perspective. 
I have no idea who Tripp spoke to for this book, and I have no idea if they are the same people, different people, wildly different people. But I do think in general, the people who are willing to speak about things like this are not always the happiest people at the time. We're not always the people who got their way with a certain project or product or decision or direction. And when you work at a company like Apple, uh, which understands design at a very, very deep level, all design is fundamentally compromise. It is fundamentally trade-off. You can never have everything. Anything that you plan has to come with an opportunity cost. Any engineer and designer you put on one project becomes unavailable for any other project. Anything that you need fixed, that you put people on to fix, means they can't also be working on something new at the same time. And at Apple scale, that is a tremendous responsibility, just managing all that. And it means that people don't always get their way. And some people become incredibly salty when they don't get their way. Uh, it becomes a huge issue. And oftentimes, when you do actually see people named, whether it's in a newspaper or magazine story or in a book, it's because the person naming them uh, did not get their way and they want to sort of lay it on that person's feet. So I take a lot of what is said here from that perspective. But the stories themselves are really, really interesting. Everything from how Steve Jobs came and basically rescued Johnny Ive from being an off-campus designer whose ideas were never listened to and managed to collaborate with him in the beginning for the Bondi Blue, Bondi Blue, I'm going to get yelled at by Australians, no matter how I say it, from that iMac and increasingly over the years through the iPod and the different Macs uh, and the iPhone and the iPad, managed to build a partnership, a collaborative partnership that was inarguably one of the greatest of all time. They just complemented each other so well. You know, with Steve being an incredible editor for Johnny's ideas, someone who was able to rapidly sort through everything the design team came up with and make almost instant decisions about what they should go forward with and what they should rework. He was a, an auteur, an editor at the height of his powers, and that was exactly what Johnny needed at the time. But Steve was also incredibly supportive. He removed any and all roadblocks from Johnny's path. And Johnny was someone who believed that ideas were fragile, that you had to nurture them, uh, that you couldn't sort of argue them back and forth. That wasn't his vibe at all. But that was very much the vibe everywhere else in Apple. And Steve managed to shield him from that all the time. He managed to elevate design to being this very protected, very well-guarded, almost sanctum inside of Apple, this temple almost inside of Apple. And after he got through carefully pruning that particular Ponsai tree, he would protect it from every other element. So he didn't have to worry about the accountants or the logistics or the operations or the marketing, any of those things. Steve would be almost the singular interface for design at Apple. And at the same time, Steve and Tim Cook had this incredible relationship where Steve would work with design and envision these amazing products, things like the iMac and the iPhone and the iPod and the iPad. And then Tim would figure out how to produce them, not just to spec, to standard, but at prices that people were willing to pay, the best prices possible. He revolutionized the entire supply chain for the entire industry. And that was an incredibly different partnership, but one that was every bit as valuable to Apple. And then suddenly at a certain point, Steve Jobs was gone and Johnny was left without that collaborative design partner, that interface, that shield from the rest of Apple. 
And Tim was left without that tastemaker, that product visionary, that editor that selected all the things that he would then move the massive machinery of Apple to build. And that is irreplaceable. No matter how talented everybody else is, no matter how much everyone else in the team comes together, that was the singular part of Apple that had produced such greatness up until then. And it was going to require a lot of change to keep producing greatness, even if you consider that greatness more normalized, that it would never have the same heights, but it would also never have the same lows. Everything would be you know, just a little bit more linear from then on, that will take massive, that would take, did take massive compromise from everybody because Johnny without Steve and Tim without Steve were never, could never be the same as when they had Steve. So for Johnny, he lost that editor. He lost that person who would carefully prune all of the design team's ideas, get rid of most of the worst ones. I mean, some of them, you know, did still ship, even, you know, under Steve. There was the G4 Cube and the wide Nano and the buttonless shuffle and just a bunch of ideas that were not so great even design-wise, but there were so many really, really spectacular ones. And Johnny no longer had that person, that collaborator, that editor. So we got to see perhaps more of the raw product of design. Unfortunately, it's not covered at all in the book, but things like uh, what happened with the Mac from 2013 on, especially 2016, with the butterfly keyboards and the new MacBook Pros. None of that is covered in the book, but that is you know, symptomatic of what was happening at the time. The Apple Watch is covered, including the gold Apple Watch, and Johnny's desire to move the company into high fashion for that watch. And the other sort of discontent around Apple about what the product focus was going to be, and maybe it should be not fashion, but fitness. And Johnny's reaction to having to deal with Apple without that shielding, that singular interface that Steve provided. And at the same time, Tim Cook wasn't Steve. He wasn't the person who would be there every day with Johnny in the design lab, who would make all of those hard choices immediately. Tim was way more collaborative. He would take his time. He was a thinker. Uh, and he would also give far more autonomy to the senior vice presidents and all their separate organizations and expected them to make those decisions themselves. And so a lot of times it's only when things weren't working that they would reach Tim and Tim would have to weigh in on them. And then there are like little anecdotes about, for example, how Johnny Ive and the industrial design team worked to make these super ellipses, these curves that were incredibly gentle and had multiple mathematical points so that there was never sort of any hard stop between the straight lines and the curves. And then him looking at the software, looking at the icons under Scott Forstall and just seeing round wrecks, you know, literally squares that were chopped off with curves at the ends and just bemoaning his, his retina bleeding over the difference between that very careful, very precise hardware. And I guess in his mind, that very sloppy software implementation, which would lead to uh, tension between industrial design, hardware design and human interface design, the software design. And then all of this has built up with the problems with the iPhone 4 antenna, which Scott would blame on hardware. But a lot of that tension erupted until you know, Scott left and then Johnny took over the design team. And he probably wanted to have input, to have say, to have control over those decisions. But he probably didn't want to have to go from managing a very small dozens of team member industrial design group to hundreds of people in an expanded hardware and software design design group. And the book sort of comes to the conclusion that 
you, you know, Tim had his problems and Johnny had his problems and fair enough. But all of this stuff at a company, the size and honestly, the importance of Apple, it's never simple. I mean, you, you need simple narratives for books. You need to have, you know, your villains and your heroes, your dramatic tension and, you know, some kind of resolution or blame or conclusion to those things. But none of this is ever that simple. These things are incredibly complicated and involve a whole range of both company dynamics, again, the trade-offs and the compromises that you have to make to ship any product or choose which product you want to ship, and also the human dynamics of everybody who's involved and getting them all to point in the same direction, especially as Apple was exploding. I mean, at the same time, Apple gets blamed for not being as innovative as it was under uh, Steve Jobs, which it's hard to measure innovation. There were a lot of wonderful products released under Steve Jobs. There were some real stinkers too. And Tim Cook's Apple has done things like the Apple Watch and like AirPods and like Apple Silicon Macs. But the innovation under Tim Cook, much like Tim Cook, you know, in stark contrast to the fiery spikes of Steve Jobs has been much more operational, much more methodical, much better planned out. You know, the Silicon team has taken a decade to get from phones and tablets to the Mac uh, and building out all of the technologies, an incredible array of technologies that lets them produce devices capable of things that they've we've just never had before. And that is sort of everyday innovation that when taken together is a spectacular for any company, let alone for Apple, who just keeps doing it over and over again. Now, can you defend saying Apple lost its soul? I, I really don't think so. I think the title is absolute clickbait. You know, and far be it for anybody on YouTube to disparage anybody else for using a clickbait title. But I think it's also inarguable, undeniable, that under Tim Cook, Apple gained very much of a soul. You know, Steve used to say, you don't pimp your karma. He would donate to charity. He would support a lot of initiatives and organizations, but he never wanted, uh, he never wanted Apple to be doing that publicly. He wanted all of that good to be done just for the sake of good, not for any publicity, where I think Tim understands that given the size and scope and scale of Apple, that they can lead by example. And I think he, one of the first things he did we start matching charitable contributions and being much more vocal about charity and civil rights and civil liberties and you know sort of the values that are really meaningful for him and he carried on Steve's you know fight for the right to privacy all of those things but in a way louder way bigger stage so i mean like there is there are absolutely incredibly important discussions to have around issues like search and advertisement and china you know for sure china but in many real ways, Tim Cook brought a soul to Apple that they never had before. So I think at best, you could argue that it is soul different. And yeah, I regretted phrasing it that way immediately after I did it, but I said what I said. And you know, as impressive as the trillions of dollars are and as meaningful as all of that is to the stock market and to Apple as a business, just completely discounting that, I think Apple has done amazing things over the last 10 years, incredible things terrific things over the last uh, 10 years that absolutely required not just the soul, but the heart of Apple behind it. So I absolutely don't agree with everything in this book, especially its conclusions, but I all caps love that it exists. And now for that companion video, the one that delves far more deeply into the original Project Titan and why I think it ultimately failed so secretly, but spectacularly, it's more of a, a hot take. It's more spicy than this channel would usually allow. And I just don't want to get Ed 209 about it. 
but you can watch it completely unfiltered on Nebula with no ads and no sponsors, just like my exclusive four-part studio tour series where I cover my cameras, my audio, my lighting, my sets, my original documentary on how the iPhone has affected the lives and the careers of your favorite creators, extended versions of my interviews with Apple executives and others, and just so much more. Because on Nebula, I have the absolute luxury of making videos, the ones that all of you asked me to make, but that just don't have to be optimized for this channel. But I also know that the nerdiest, most dedicated and hardcore of you will totally love all ad-free, sponsor-free on Nebula and bundled in for free when you sign up with today's sponsor at curiositystream.com slash Ritchie or click the link below. And right now, because you're watching this video, you can get CuriosityStream on Super Sale for 42% off, less than 12 bucks a year, less than a dollar a month for the whole entire year. And that includes their thousands of amazing documentaries and series like How Did the Universe Begin? Where scientists on the Bicep and Planck missions are attempting to solve a mystery about the earliest moments of the universe by searching for patterns in the cosmic microwave background. I figure the thing that created the Fantastic Four, but that's just me. It's the best way to support educational creators directly and just the best damn deal in streaming today. So for 42% off CuriosityStream, less than $12 a year, less than a dollar a month, and Nebula bundled in for free, just click the button on the screen or go to curiositystream.com slash Ritchie. Clicking on that button really helps out this channel and so does hitting up this playlist for way more hyper-detailed videos explaining how exactly Apple works and why sometimes it just doesn't. So hit that playlist and I'll see you in the next video.